Hello, and welcome to another podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. I'm your moderator, Rebecca Mashaw. Thank you for joining us for this continuation of a conversation on celiac disease with Drs. Brian Lacey and Ben Lebwall. Hi, I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm continuing my conversation on celiac disease with Dr. Ben Lebwall, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Celiac Disease Research Center at Columbia University in New York City. Ben, in our first podcast, you gave us an overview of celiac disease. Today, I'd like to talk about diagnosing celiac disease through testing and biopsies. For the clinician in a busy practice, what's the most effective and efficient means of testing for celiac disease? Testing for celiac disease typically begins with checking serologies. And if you only remember one serology for celiac disease, it's tissue transglutaminase IgA, TTG IgA. Um, It has very high both sensitivity and specificity. Both are in the 90s. And so you'll catch most patients and you will not have too many false positives. Now, we all are familiar with the idea of panels, celiac panels, and sometimes that can actually cause more confusion than clarity. The reason panels exist in celiac disease is because no one serology is perfect. So the TTG IgA, that's your, that's your desert island test, right? That's the one that you wanna remember. But you will miss a patient, for example, with selective IgA deficiency. And so typically a panel will include both a TTG IgA and a total IgA. And if the total IgA is low or undetectable, and you're dealing with a patient with selective IgA deficiency, then there's a role for other serologies, the IgG serologies. And there is a TTG IgG, it's far less specific, far more prone to false positives. There's also a set of deamidated gliden antibodies. And so the deamidated gliden antibody or DGP IgG is uh, our go-to serology in someone with selective IgA deficiency. But going back to your question about what's sort of the convenient or most effective and efficient way of testing for celiac disease, TTG IgA. It's one test and you'll catch the great majority of your patients that way. Great teaching point. Thank you. Ben, you kind of briefly mentioned the genetic predisposition for celiac disease. When do you decide to do genetic testing for celiac disease? And are there any special rules about those genetic tests that we should be aware of? So there are um, three main scenarios where testing for the celiac gene, the HLA DQ2, DQ8, can be helpful. One um, is a situation where you have a discrepancy between one's serologies and one's biopsy. So either they have duodenal villus atrophy, looks like celiac disease, but their serology is just not showing an elevated TTG, a genetic test may be helpful in helping change our sense of the likelihood that this really is celiac disease. A second context is when assessing relatives, especially young children. So if someone's mother or father has celiac disease and you're dealing with an infant and you want to know, will this person ever be at risk for celiac disease? Well, if the DQ2 or DQ8 are absent, this person tests negative for both that person's lifetime risk of getting celiac disease is close to zero because we see those genes as necessary 
for developing celiac disease. Necessary but insufficient. So a discrepancy between serology and biopsy, assessing a relative about what is their lifetime risk, will they ever get celiac disease? And in the third scenario, the increasingly common scenario where someone comes to the doctor already having started a gluten-free diet. Because once the gluten-free diet is started, uh, the clock starts ticking. If that person had celiac disease, things will normalize. Their antibodies will go towards normal over the course typically of months. Uh, their duodenal biopsy may even normalize uh, over time on a strict gluten-free diet, but their genes don't change. And so testing for DQ2 and DQ8 in that context might be very helpful because if they don't have the DQ2 or DQ8 gene, that person does not have celiac disease. And we don't have to really think about doing a gluten challenge, for example, um, in that situation. So those are the three main clinical scenarios where genetic testing is indicated and helpful. Ben, those are three great rules to remember. Thank you. And you mentioned duodenal biopsies. So this is still a controversial topic. When do you do it and how should it be done? Well, as the serologies have gotten better, and that TTG IgA serology has a sensitivity of perhaps 90%, but specificity 98% or higher. In other words, a positive TTG, especially a highly elevated TTG, is highly likely to mean celiac disease. Doctors and patients are asking, why even bother to do the duodenal biopsy? And in fact, European guidelines for children have allowed for a biopsy-free approach in certain scenarios. Um, if you have a sufficiently elevated TTG, greater than 10 times um, the upper limit of normal. In someone with um, a compatible HLA type and with a secondary test that's also positive, typically the anti-endomysial antibody, one that's more commonly performed in, in children than in adults. In that situation where the positive predictive value for celiac disease is close to 100, percent, the biopsy could potentially be skipped. These guidelines have not made their way across the Atlantic um, to U.S. guidelines, either in children or in adults. And it should be pointed out, there are no guidelines of major professional organizations that say skipping the biopsy um, is okay in adults, primarily uh, because the positive predictive value for even a highly elevated TTG IgA has not been shown to be close enough to 100% in adults to justify skipping that biopsy. Actually, a recent multi-center study looking at multiple different countries and endoscopy suites and TTG assays found that a high enough TTG elevation, greater than 10 times upper limit of normal, gives you 95% positive predictive value for celiac disease. That sounds great, but that's, to me, unacceptably low when you're contemplating prescribing a lifelong diet that can be difficult, expensive, socially isolating, um, and has a, a number of downsides. And so for now, uh, uh, at least among adults, the biopsy is a central part of the diagnosis of celiac disease. And so there are exceptions in someone who's unwilling or unable to tolerate uh, a duodenal biopsy, whether it's because they have multiple comorbidities that, that may interfere with sedating the patient, or for example, they have a bleeding disorder that makes a biopsy unacceptably hazardous. We sort of borrow those pediatric guidelines. Um, but even so, there's always that little asterisk. And we say that they were, bi they were diagnosed based on highly elevated serologies and we're pretty sure 
they have celiac disease. It still appears to be the case that the biopsy um, is, is the way we, we firm up the diagnosis. And in those exceptions, we sometimes rely on things like capsule endoscopy to you know, bolster our confidence even further if, if we're missing um, tissue diagnosis. Wonderful. Thanks for this great discussion today, Ben. I look forward to our next conversation on this important topic. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to look for the next podcast in this series in which Drs. Lacey and Lebwall will discuss the challenges and the importance of a gluten-free diet for patients with celiac disease.